Well, church family, let's, uh, let's step back into the epistle of 1 John this morning. Uh, so grab your Bible or your iPhone or pad or whatever you're carrying with you today that's got scripture in it. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5 today. If you need a Bible, just uh, raise your hand. Charlie's in the back ready to share a copy of God's Word. We keep some in the back just in case you got out without yours. And if you don't know the drill, in your bulletin there's a little note page uh, that uh, I think will be helpful for us as we move through our time together today. Whether we are thinking about um, music or literature or film, really any medium that tells a story, the ones that garner the ascription of being a great music, uh, musical score or a classic read or memorable are those, generally speaking, that end with an emotionally powerful, compelling, encouraging, or inspirational kind of, a, of, a, of, a, of an ending. Those are the, the classics, the musical score that lifts you and moves you to the point where before you're done, maybe you're crying, you have tears. Uh, that's, that's a memorable song. The hero that, that wins the day and rides off into the sunset makes for a great ending to a, to a movie. The couple that lives happily ever after in the story becomes a classic. Dorothy says, Auntie M, there's no place like home, right? What a great ending to that movie. How something ends is really important, and we understand that. The ending puts the final period on the whole thing in a, in a way that drives home the point or the musical score or the speech or the story. Great storytelling or great truth-telling ends strong. And that happens today as we come to the final verses of the epistle of 1 John, chapter 5, this morning. Now, as I mentioned to you last time, though we will come to the end of 1 John today in our study series, the end of the book, our our study series doesn't end today. But we're going to take one more week and uh, be in First John again, Lord willing, next Sunday, unless the Lord comes back and takes us to be with him. And then the series is for sure done uh, at that point. But uh, if that doesn't happen, we're coming back to First John one more time. And we're going to share verse 13 and let 513 actually be the concluding verse of our series where John writes, I, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We're going to end on that glorious note because that really is the theme verse of the book. And we've joined up with it many, many times over the last several months. It'll finish it up and pull it all together. But today we are actually going to come to the end verses of 1 John. And getting back to the point about ending strong, the Apostle John does end strong today. Uh, He may have been an unschooled fisherman in his early days, But we have to remember he walked with Jesus for three and a half years in the school of discipleship. And he learned a ton there and and then about how to communicate well as he watched Jesus. And, And then he's lived his whole life since meeting Jesus. He's lived faithfully for several decades just living out his faith. Um, And then ending now, inspired by the Holy Spirit, John is going to just be so strong and give out a a shout of confidence as you see the title on your little note page this morning. He's going to end really strong in a most compelling confidence-building and memorable 
way. Verses 13 to 21 essentially are John's postscript to the main body of the letter. And these nine verses uh, form kind of a series of powerful concluding thoughts that are intended to kind of give us a final injection of confidence or assurance to our hearts as real Christians who love the Lord Jesus. John's focus focuses on five things in these nine verses that, that genuine Christians, real Christians, can be unshakably confident about, introducing each one of them with the words, we know. Six times in nine verses, John says, we know. Real Christians know they have eternal life, verse 13. That God answers their prayers, verses 14 to 17. That they have the power to overcome sin, in verse 18. That they are God's forever possession, in verse 19. And that Jesus is God in flesh, Savior, and eternal life, in verses 20 and 21. Since we're now going to be saving the first we know, Till next time, verse 13, and last time we unpacked the second we know uh, in verses 14 to 17. Today we take up the other three of John's we knows in verses 18 to 21. One commentator says that each of these verses begins with a shout of confidence, and there's where I stole the title for our time together this morning. See if you don't agree with me as I read these closing verses, beginning at verse 18. Follow along, would you, in your Bible. We know, John says, that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The end. (laughs) Oh, that part wasn't there, but I, I added it. It doesn't take a Bible scholar, obviously, to figure out John's outline in verses 18 to 21. There are three certainties that we know and that we can shout out with the strongest confidence as real Christians. From verse 18, we know, brothers and sisters, that Satan can never take us out. Would you shout amen to that? Absolutely. From verse 19, we know that we are not of this world. Can you say amen? Amen. Yes. And from verse 20, we know that it's all about Jesus. On your note page, John's outline really becomes our outline today. First, let's talk about that first we know, that Satan can never take us out. Do you have today in the deepest part of your soul an absolutely certain unshakable confidence that that first declaration is true for you do you do you church all right yes that satan can never take you out you believe that with an unshakable confidence that's verse 18 We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he, Jesus, who was was born of God, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Amen and amen. 
Church family, if you've been with us throughout the series, you know that this is a familiar theme for John in his epistle. We are born of God through faith in Jesus, and because of this, not only will we not continue in sinful rebellion against God by virtue of our relationship with Jesus, but we cannot continue in sinful rebellion against Him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 and verse 9, and lots of other places describe our relationship with our God. Do you recall these words from chapter 3 when we were here a couple months ago? Verse verse 6, we'll put them up on the screen. And verse 9, John says, No one who abides in him, what? Keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot. Circle that word in your Bible. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The Holy Spirit here is describing God's miracle in us of rebirthing our spiritual life. We were by nature born into death, weren't we? Scripture tells us that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We were dead in transgressions and sin before we knew Jesus. But by virtue of Jesus' victory over sin, death, and the grave, on the cross and at the resurrection, and His sinless righteous life being applied to our lives by faith, God makes us alive. John says we are born of God. We're given a new nature. Our old nature craved sin. It it, it acted out of selfish motives. It it exuded pride and it relished self-glory. That was our old nature. But our new nature is born of God, John says. And it is alive to God. And it wants what God wants. It wants to live in a way that pleases God. As you... As we've noted many times, or should I say, as John has noted so many times for us, you can tell a real Christian from a fake Christian in large measure by how they behave or by how they live or by what they want, right? We've talked about it week after week. If someone claims to be a Christian, but the ongoing pattern of their life is a self-focused, sin-focused pattern of disregard for God, His Word, and His people, then one can rightly conclude that while that person is a professor of Jesus, they are not a possessor of Jesus. Right? You can tell. John would say, you can't keep on sinning and know the living God whose name is Jesus. In chapter 3, and here in verse 18, that verb for sin there, it means ongoing sin. It means a a pattern of a, a lifestyle of living out sinful disregard for God. Sin will always have a, a, a presence in the life of a real Christian. We're not saying that if you become a Christian, you you can become perfect. We're not saying that, are we? We've never said that because Scripture doesn't say that. We wish it wasn't true, but as Christians, we battle with sin. Our old nature has been defeated, but it hasn't been extinguished. It won't be until we see Jesus face to face that we'll be free from the ravages and the, and the ongoing effects of sin. But we're not promoting sinful perfection in any way. However, a genuine Christian, John will tell us by the Spirit here, will not, cannot 
remain in rebellious sin against God and his will. It just can't happen. The new nature, our love for the one who loved us all the way to the cross, will not allow that to happen. All God's prodigal sons and daughters eventually come home, someone has said. And that's cool, isn't it? We may blow it, but we will come home. We must come home if we're real. Now, back when we were studying 1 John 3, verse 9, we had some fun illustrating the truth of of that verse. When John makes the point, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because they've been born of God. Or he says here in verse 18, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. We talked about the difference between pigs and sheep. And I don't know if you remember that morning, but uh, pigs and sheep, they're not the same animal, are they? And, and both of them get dirty, we, we observed. Both of them can at times be clean, but there is a big difference between pigs and sheep. You can clean up a pig. You can put a silver bell around their neck, uh, tie a pretty bow on their tail, brush their teeth. But the moment that you give them the opportunity, what is a pig going to do? It's going to go back to the waller, to the mud. Was it the waller? Did somebody say waller, the holler, something? Like, yeah? The muddy bog? Yeah, if you give a pig the chance, that's where they're going to go. They're going to go straight there because that's the nature of a pig to do that, right? A sheep, on the other hand, by nature desires to be clean. They will from time to time step into the mud because of fear or stupidity or being ornery or just unwitting. They will walk into a muddy field or a bog. At times, sheep get, gets mud, they get muddy and dirty, just as dirty as a pig sometimes, but that's not the way they will stay. They do not want to remain that way. So pigs can be clean, but prefer to be muddy. Sheep can be muddy. They prefer to be clean. Sheep don't stay in the mud. Pigs love to stay in the mud. John celebrates this here in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God will not stay in the mud, right? And there are two reasons why that's true in verse 18. He who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Who is John talking about here? He's talking about Jesus and he's talking about Satan, these two characters. Jesus actively works by the Holy Spirit and by the word of God to protect those that he has redeemed. Jesus loves, cares about, and protects all of his sheep. Recall these words, fellow Christian? Wonderful promise from Jesus. John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus said, my, what? My sheep. Don't, aren't you glad it doesn't say pigs? <laughs> aren't you glad? My sheep hear my voice. They don't want to stay dirty. They want to be clean. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. 
Jesus protects us in the sense that He is actively at work in our lives as the Holy Spirit animates our faith, as the Word of God renews our minds and our hearts daily, as He purposefully prays for us to the Father. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says, Jesus prays for you and I all the time, actively interceding for our protection. Jesus will never let Satan take you out. Is that good? That is a good thing to know today, isn't it? That's a shout of confidence. He won't let that happen. And according to, 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 to verse 29 here, the Father is actively working in this way as well. We are in their hands. And no one can snatch us out of their hands. Do you believe it? Eugene Peterson, in his helpful paraphrase, in 1 John 5.18 says, We know that none of the God-begotten makes a practice of sin. The God-begotten are also the, what? God-protected. The evil one can't lay a hand on them. I love that rendering of the verse. Satan cannot gain spiritual victory over you. It cannot happen. He can tempt you. He can attempt to discourage you, distract you. He can attempt to fire darts of doubt into your faith. But he can never, ever, ultimately separate you from the life that you have with God through faith in the Lord Jesus. It can't happen. As Eugene Peterson says, the God-begotten are also the God-protected. Brothers and sisters, if we truly believe what verse 18 says today, if we truly believe that, this produces within us an unshakable confidence. Do you feel that? Do you sense that in your life, day to day as you're living out your life with Jesus, that Satan cannot take you out? If Jesus caught you as you're walking out, to your car after we're done here today and you're walking to your car and Jesus, if he were to walk up to you, put his arm around you and say, I am personally keeping my eye on you and you're going to make it. How would you feel as you got into your car? How would you feel? I'm going to keep my eye on you and I just want you to know, Dennis, Peggy, I just want you to know you're going to make it. How would you feel? What would you say to that? What would you say? Thank you? You would say, praise be to you, right? Satan cannot take me out. You would shout that out. I think you would do that. You're a conservative bunch. You're just kind of holding back, aren't you? (laughs) Oh, man. We know, John says, Satan can never take us out. And then in verse 19 comes a second shout out of confidence. We know that we're not of this world. We know that. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, verse 19, in some ways, is really the application of the truth of verse 18. If we're born of God, 
Where did we come from? We came from God, right? If we're born of God, we came from God. We know that we are from God, John says that. He, he affirms that. Where did our new birth come from? Well, it came from God, right? Where did forgiveness of sin come from in your life? It came from God. Uh, where did your spiritual adoption into God's family come from? It came from God. Where did every spiritual benefit, blessing, or promise that you experience right now in your life, where did it all come from? It all came from God. Because you are born of God. You are from God. Everything that is in a real Christian's life is a God thing. And in that sense, it is not of this world, is it? If it came from us, think how differently our story would read today. If it came from us, we wouldn't be here right now, would we? If our spiritual life rested on what we do and what we are and what we were able to accomplish, we wouldn't be here. We are feeble. We are flimsy. We live. We die. We come. We go. If salvation was of mankind or uh, from a human and earthly invention, what kind of confidence, what kind of assurance could we possibly have for this life? We could have none, right? No assurance whatsoever. What has sinful mankind ever done or ever touched that he didn't mess up, right? But since our salvation is sourced in God and we are from God, our confidence is sourced in Him. Our salvation from first to last, like everything else, it's all from Him. Every person who is alive in the world who does not have Jesus as their Savior and their Lord is in the grip of the evil one. That's what John says. Remember from earlier, we are in the hands of Jesus. We're in the hands of the Father. And no one and no thing can snatch us out of their hands. But the world lies in the power of the enemy, the evil one, Satan. We rest confidently in the power of God. We are His. We are not of this world. Do you believe it? Right now, out in the parking lot, I think there are at least a few cars, your car perhaps, that has this logo either on the window or maybe on the bumper. We won't ask you to raise your hand if you're one of those uh, who has that. Uh, it's a logo for a Christian apparel company called Not of This World. Uh, it's a cool logo. I love the logo. It's a neat looking logo. It's been around a long time now. It's easily recognized by many who are inside the Christian circle, but also outside of the Christian circle. But brothers and sisters, you gotta, you've got to know that NOTW is not just a catchy name for a, a clothing retailer. NOTW, not of this world, is a description of you. It is a description of you right now if you are in Jesus. And it's real. Not of this world. Listen to Jesus' passionate prayer to His Heavenly Father in John 17. Hours away from going to the cross for us, here's what Jesus prayed on that night. Father, 
while I was with them, with my disciples. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. In other words, I protected them. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are what? Not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, let me ask you, do you think that the the Father in heaven answers the prayers of his son. (laughs) So what has he prayed? He has prayed, don't take them out of this world. Don't take them out, but protect them in it. They are not of it. Does that describe you? If we were to look at your life throughout the course of a a normal week for you, would we know by the way that you live that you are not of this world? That would be John's point. We know. And we can shout out confidently this morning, Satan can never take me out. And I'm not of this world. You want to try that with me? You want to shout that out with me? Satan can never take me out. Let's shout it out. Satan can never take me out. Secondly, I am not of this world. Ready? I am not of this world. You believe it? Right on. One more. If you flip your note page over from verse 20, we know that it's what? It is. It's all about Jesus, isn't it? Man, that is so verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and He is eternal life. These are the things we know, John says. It's all about Jesus. Here's the crescendo, the compelling encouraging, doctrinally powerful, inspirational, totally Jesus-centered statement that puts all of the hope and all of the confidence right where it needs to be. On Jesus. John began his epistle with a declaration of who Jesus is and not a surprise that he would end his epistle in exactly the same way, focused squarely on the person of Jesus. In this one sentence, John shouts out, as you see it there on your note page, four glorious truths, each one deserving a morning all to itself, although that can't happen today. What are those four truths? Number one, that Jesus is sinless God. Number two, that He is the God who came and put on flesh and lived with us. Truth three, that Jesus brought infinite Father God within our reach so we could understand Him. And truth number four, Jesus is the one and only place that a sinner can run and find eternal life. No doubt these are John's final points of rebuttal to those Gnostic New Age false teachers and the disciples of them that were confusing the church in John's day. The impetus for John penning the epistle was that there were false teachers who were sowing seeds of, of, of lies against the person of Jesus. And John writes 
to battle that. The Gnostics rejected essential aspects of Jesus' person and His work, stripping Him of His deity, making Him only a good man and a teacher, but certainly not the Savior of the world. And so in this one verse, John sends four massive torpedoes into the hull of the Gnostic ship, determined to send that ship to the bottom. Boom, 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 boom. Four things he wants us to know about Jesus. The first shout of confidence, Jesus, you are sinless God. The false teachers tried to say that Jesus became the Messiah. He was just a man. A good man, an exceptionally good man, so good, in fact, that God confirmed on him the role of Savior. That was the Gnostic teaching. John says, no way. No way. And we know that the Son of God is the true God. This declaration is not unlike the way John opens his gospel. These words should sound very familiar to you. In the beginning was the Word, which is Jesus, the living expression of the invisible God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God. Was God. He wasn't a good man who God then conferred some Messiah role on. He was God. He, be, he was never not God. This is essential truth for us, brothers and sisters. Because if anyone strips the sinless deity and sonship of Jesus from him, as these false teachers were attempting to do, he's not qualified to be our Savior. Is he? No. Jesus has to be God in order to be Savior. If he's only a man, no matter how good he was, he was still born a sinner. Right? And one sinner can never atone for the sin of another sinner. That will never happen. Jesus' death could not pay the ransom price for our sin, your sin or my sin, unless Jesus is fully God and has always been fully God and sinless. And aside from that, he has to be God because he claimed to be God, didn't he? Didn't he say earlier in John 10, I and the Father are what? One. He was claiming deity. So if he is not God, then he is what? He's a liar. And no, a liar is going to atone for your sin. He has to be God. Jesus' whole life, his whole ministry is framed in the context of his relationship with the Father as the Son. If he's not the Son of God, all that is just theater. It's all phony and fake, smoke and mirrors. He's not our Savior. Jesus was and is the Son of God, the only true God. And all we can do is say, praise be to you, that that is true. The second truth that John confidently shouts is that Jesus has come. And we know that the Son of God has come. Is that important? That's hugely important because here John is boldly affirming the incarnation of Jesus. As the co-equal, co-eternal, second person of the Trinity, Jesus existed before creation. He existed before time, before anything that we know ever came into being. But he came and was virgin born into our world, put on our flesh so that he could fully identify with us, yet be sinless as he did so. Does he have to come? You bet he has to come. 
And so the first truth that John declares affirms Jesus' deity. He is God. This second truth affirms his humanity, doesn't it? And both are absolutely essential to our salvation. You recall the similar declaration John expressed again in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. And the word, Jesus, did what? He became flesh. And what did he do? He dwelt among us. He came and lived with us. He walked in our shoes sinlessly. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's not writing as an outsider here. He, he was the ultimate Jesus observer. He was in Jesus' inner circle. He saw the miracles. He heard the sermons. He devoured the teaching of Jesus. He was in the upper room. He was at the cross, at the bottom of the cross, the foot of the cross, watching Jesus die. He was at the empty tomb on Easter morning. He was present for many of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. He's called the disciple that Jesus loved. He's an eyewitness. He saw it. Do you remember from several months back how John opened his epistle of 1 John? Listen again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made what? Manifest to us. The eyewitness says, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him. He is the real deal. God truly did come into our world. And then John follows that up with a third confident declaration. Verse 20, once again. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Church family, while it's a wonderful thing to think of what Jesus has done for us in terms of of, of leaving heaven and putting on flesh and, and making forgiveness of sin possible for us, securing our redemption through his death and his resurrection. We must never forget that all of that was, uh, had a, was a means to an end. The ultimate goal of all, is, all of that was so that you and I could be restored back to the Father, back into a personal relationship that sin had stolen from us in Genesis chapter 3. All that Jesus did was so that you and I could once again know and understand personally and experientially what it means to be in a personal relationship with God. Jesus, you made your Father known to me. You introduced me to Him. Without you, I would never know Him the way that I know Him. Jesus, you gave us spiritual understanding and you put, you put us back in fellowship with your Father, a fellowship that sin robbed us of. Thank you. Thank you for making the Father understandable to me. Jesus said more than once, if you've seen me, you've what? You've seen the Father. The Apostle Paul echoes the words of Jesus, the words of John in a different way. He writes the Colossian church family, and here's what he says. Colossians 1.15, He, Jesus, 
is the what? The image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? Just look at Jesus. The writer of Hebrews frames the truth in a similar way. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact what? Imprint of his nature. Look at Jesus and you are looking at the God of the universe. He perfectly imaged the Father so that we could understand Him, be restored to a forever relationship with Him, and know Him personally and experientially. One modern-day writer commenting on this part of verse 20 says, It is not only that Christ has revealed the Father by His incarnation, His perfect life, His atoning death, and glorious resurrection, but that through all of this He has brought us into the closest possible union with the one true God. Is that your reality today? Is that describing you today? In a personal relationship with the one true God. That thought, a relationship with the one true God, brings us to the fourth confident shout that John makes in this verse. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. He is what he provides. Can you say amen? Amen. There's a restaurant in Riverside called Mr. Taco. You ever been there? Guess what they serve? (laughs) tacos right in Riverside there's another restaurant called Mr. Hero what do they serve gyros there's another restaurant in Riverside you can check this out they're there google it there's a Mr. Kebabs in Riverside do you know what they specialize in Kassan's just got a big smile on her she knows about Mr. Kebabs What do they serve at Mr. Kebabs? Kebabs, right? Jesus is eternal life. What do you think Jesus serves? Eternal life. He is Mr. Eternal Life. I probably shouldn't have said that. (laughs) On the night before Jesus goes to the cross for us, brothers and sisters, he gathers his disciples to him. And he says to them in John 14, verse 6, words that you perhaps have memorized. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me, right? Why? Because I alone am eternal life. There is no other way. Or, how about this one? John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
Back up in verse 12 of this fifth chapter of 1 John. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Why? Because Jesus, you are what you provide. You are life. Four glorious truths, each one shouting out, Jesus, it is all about you. You are sinless God. You came. You came into a sin-infected world and you put on my flesh and, 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 and so that I could understand and know the infinite Father the way you know Him. And you've come to give me eternal life. Your life. Oh, what a shout of confidence. Jesus, it is all about you. Amen? John closes the letter with verse 21 in a final cryptic warning using the same special term of endearment that he has used uh, several times before in this letter speaking to the beloved Christians that he's writing to, he says, little children, little children, keep yourselves from idols. After a a letter that exposes the false Christian, John concludes with a word about false gods. Idols are anything that we love or worship or look to that provide what only God through Jesus can provide. That becomes an idol, right? It doesn't have to be made of wood and stone. It can be anything that comes between us and God. Keep yourselves free from idols. It's John's way of saying, love God and Jesus supremely. Let nothing come between you and them. False gods, false Christians, false teachers, false Christs. First John has been all about an unrelenting charge to genuine followers of Jesus. You do not let anything come between you and your God. You and the Lord Jesus. Be real in an unreal world. Live with unshakable confidence of what you know is true. What do we know is true? Brothers and sisters, what do we know is true? Can we shout it out together? We know that Satan can never take you out, that you are not of this world, and it's all about Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Oh, it's a joy to shout that out with my friends this morning. Heavenly Father, wow. What glorious truths that we get to end with here today. And not just to to end with here, but to take uh, out into the world we live in. A world that doesn't know you. Needs to know these truths. Make us bold. Infuse within us just an unshakable confidence. We're so grateful that these things are true in our lives. All made possible by you, Lord Jesus. We said it earlier. We say it again. We love you. But we only love you because you loved us first. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen.